0: This is one of the things that makes this time of the year one of the best times of the year. Not only are we reflecting on the story of Christmas, which is the story of the advent of Jesus Christ, but it's a time where families get to come together and perhaps some like to drive around and just look at the Christmas lights uh, in the neighborhood or other neighborhoods or the decorations that are up or just spending time decorating your own home with your family that's thats reassembled perhaps for the first time in, in some time. It's a time when uh, church families and families as well sing the Christmas carols, get to reconnect with friends, family, uh, the sending of the cards, seeing how families have grown, your own family, etc. And a time of... Giving and receiving gifts from loved ones. I don't know about you, but when I think back on my childhood memories, I think that some of the most precious and fondest memories that I have uh, are centered around Christmas. Um, The excitement of... I was reflecting with some of my some in my family of how back in the day, I used to do things um, to try to stay up, you know, late, go to bed, mom will go to bed, then I can s- sneak back out and watch some cookies and milk being drunk, these kinds of things. And just the, the excitement that, that is in the season, that's in that season that's in the air, there's just something really unique about it. And, um, and I hope that you all this morning As you think about the advent of Christ and why we celebrate it and all the things that surround that as well, I hope that you can remember these these precious memories and those amazing feelings and and just seeing the sparkle in the the eyes of children as they just look at a, a present that's wrapped underneath the tree that has their name on it. You know, when you're young, it doesn't matter if the Present costs $5 or perhaps $50 or more. It's just the fact that there's a present under the tree that's got your name on it. That's just such, there's an exhilaration to that. And, uh, and most parents have also learned along the way that uh, the bigger the box, the better. Because oftentimes as they rip through, they throw this, oh yeah, great. And then the box becomes like the coolest toy ever in which a child can play. And so in my short 53 years of existence, I've been able to be on kind of both sides of that, of both the receiving and the giving of gifts and the very emotional and powerful experience that that is. And so it's no surprise that the Bible tells us that God the Father, when giving the greatest gift of all, that he did so from a heart of love. I mean, all of, I think all of us probably know uh, the, the John three sixteen passage uh, by memory, by rote probably, says that for God so loved. loved. When God the Father was giving the greatest gift that's ever been given, it was from a heart of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him might not perish but have life, and have life everlasting. Isn't that great? Just try to imagine, if you can. It's difficult, I understand, but try to imagine the, um, you know, God the Father looking at you, His child, and from eternity past as he's thinking of giving the greatest gift of eternal life in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. The joy, the excitement that he would have as he looked at those who would become the children of God. Those whom he would be redeeming and saving from a world of lost sinners to make his very own. The joy, the excitement, the wonderment that he must have felt when reflecting upon Christ, church, a body. And then giving the gift of Jesus, the gift of the gospel, for that body. Sometimes we need to slow down long enough to allow that truth to sink in, don't we? We live in a very fast-paced and hectic world, and slowing down enough to allow that truth to sink in is sometimes very difficult to remember that there was a babe who was born in Bethlehem for this very reason, and that this is the reason for this season. And so it's once a year that I have the privilege of pulling out my Barney Fife pistol and firing the only bullet that we can fire and retelling the greatest story that's ever been told we call it the christmas story and we read it frequently during this time the luke 2 1 through 20 christmas story But i think it's good for us to slow down and to reflect upon some of these amazing truths that are embedded in this story. Because it's not just a story that we kind of read to get past, it's a story we need to read and to reflect upon and to allow the truths of what we see in this passage that we're very familiar with, to take some root within our hearts, within our soul, to remember the deep realities of the love of God for those whom he has called to be his own. A simple outline that I'm going to have us look at this morning is, number one, a historical setting in the first three verses. We see uh, that Jesus was born at just the right time in history. Secondly, uh, a journey to David's city, that Jesus was born to the right family. Thirdly, the humble birth, verses 6 and 7. And then as a result of that, number four, that heaven and earth rejoice verses 8 through 20. So if you have your copy of God's Word, you can open up to Luke chapter 2. Let's take a look at the first three verses here together. It says, Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. So historically, we learn from verse 1 that Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor while Christ was born. And historically, we know that Augustus ruled from around 27 B.C. to around 14 A.D. And it was this same Augustus who decreed, as we see here in verse 1, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, as it says, meaning the entire Roman Empire and all the countries that were under Rome's dominion. He wanted an accounting of every person living under his dominion, under the Roman Empire. And verse 3 tells us everyone within the Roman system of rule was on their way to register for the census. And then it says at the very end of verse three, each to his own city. So try to imagine, just try to, from a bird's eye view, you're, you're flying over uh, at this time in world history in, in a 747, which obviously did not exist, but You're in a bird's-eye view. Try to imagine the mass of humanity that is in movement for the very purpose of taking this census. All because the emperor wanted it. Pretty astounding when you think about that. Can you kind of see that in your mind's eye? You get up high, you look down, you see all these people moving, each to his own city. Because the emperor is a very powerful man. Yet... One of the things we know from the Word of God, from the book of Proverbs, is that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and it's the Lord, he who turns it, the king's heart, wherever he, the Lord, wishes. So this proverb lets us know that every king, say maybe Caesar Augustus, perhaps, or president, or emperor or chancellor of any place in the world, we've been seeing this in the book of Daniel as we're studying that currently, that the most powerful people who make such decisions like this have hearts that can be turned to do the things that the Lord desires by the hand of the Lord to follow the sovereign decree of the Lord our Heavenly Father, who uses the mass of humanity and this planet to accomplish his will. To turn events to work out according to his story. His story. And what we have seen in Luke 2, in verses 1 through 3, is a very obvious illustration of just that. Luke portrays Augustus as the unknowing agent of God, whose decree leads to the fulfillment of the promised rise of a special ruler from Bethlehem. In Micah 5.2, it says, Bethlehem of Bethlehem, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. So, in order to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that Micah 5 2 would be fulfilled and Christ would go forth from that town, God moved an entire empire through Caesar Augustus to make that happen. I think it's important that sometimes we slow down long enough to think about that and to let that sink in. How about you? This is the God that we serve. Our God rules and reigns from heaven, and he turns hearts of kings like channels of water in his hand to do his bidding whatsoever he's pleased to do. And we just thought Augustus was kind of a, a grumpy emperor who wanted, you know, just to have a head count. It's probably how. History might see that. God had other plans indeed. Now notice, notice how Luke's attention narrows here from all the families and all the people to one family. Notice verse 4 and 5. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. The journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem is approximately 90 miles, and in their going to Bethlehem, we could slow down a a bit and talk about how Joseph and Mary were being obedient to this Roman government, to an ungodly government, we could have that conversation and make the connection that sometimes obedience even to an evil system, an evil government, is oftentimes necessary to bring about God's will on earth as it is in heaven. We might could slow down enough to consider that. That might have room for pondering these days. But the focus of 2-4 is clearly the, the Davidic connection. And we see that both Joseph and Mary are of the house of David, and in that they both go to Bethlehem to register. So what's clear is that it's the Davidic and thus the regal, the royal kingly connections of Jesus, which are being stressed here by Luke. When we look back in Luke to chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. Let me read this for us. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Here we see the angelic pronouncement over Mary of the reality that the one who will be born of her has a regal connection, a royal, kingly connection to the house and family of David. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, we see this in 2 Samuel 7 where God established his covenant with David through the prophet Nathan. And in verse 16, God promised this to David. He said to David, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. And it was said of the one who is to be born of Mary that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. So Luke is clearly wanting to make The connection and show that jesus christ is of the lineage of david now while this covenant that god made with david did not have a guarantee of of an uninterrupted rule by david's family we know that that did happen with the babylonian exile there was an interruption in this davidic line of rule and even to this day in israel there has not been a king reigning over them however it did promise the right to rule would always remain with David, his family, and his dynasty. And Luke is showing that Jesus Christ is of the lineage of David and is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David. After Christ's death, burial, there was a resurrection. And Jesus... It says, presented himself alive to his apostles, appearing to them for a period of over 40 days. And we know from the book of Acts, chapter 1, from verse 3 down through verse 8, just that little portion of scripture right there that they were talking about that same kingdom. Notice in verse 3, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to to them over a period of forty days and speaking of the things. And what things was he speaking to them about? Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying... Now notice the, um, the continuation of the conversation. He's speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God, letting them know that the promise of the Holy Spirit was coming, which he heard of from him. And they turned the conversation back to him, and they say, Lord... Is that at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? You see, the Jewish nation they were anticipating this promised Messiah, this promised Savior who was going to come into the into the Lord into the world who is Christ our Lord the difficulty they had was in distinguishing between his first advent and his second advent as they were reading through the book of isaiah as they were reading through their old testament they did not have the ability to make the distinctions between the first and second advent between the suffering servant of isaiah 53 and the ruling and reigning messiah who was going to be the greater david Who would have a throne that would be established forever, just like the angels told Mary that the son that she was going to give birth to would reign over the house and the throne of his father David and would have a kingdom that would have no end. They were anticipating this and it didn't happen the way they were anticipating. They thought in Christ's first advent was going to be the reestablishment of that Davidic kingdom. It took them some time to get over that. It took them some time to realize as Jesus kept relating to them, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to have to suffer and die at the hands of the Romans. and I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise again. It took them some time to get to that place. And so after he rose, he presented himself alive after his sufferings. And he spoke to them again about the kingdom of God, the very thing that they were anticipating and looking forward to, the rule and reign of David, the reestablishment of Israel as a dominant world power to overthrow the Roman government that was suppressing them. He says, look, you need to focus more on what I've promised, which is the coming Holy Spirit, They turn their questioning back to him. Is it? is, Is it? Lord, at this time, are you restoring the kingdom now? Their anticipation was perhaps that now that the suffering piece is over, that we've come to understand and believe in. When is this next piece? The kingdom. The reemergence of the nation of Israel, ruling, Messiah ruling from the throne of David, is that now? Well, he says to them in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the epics, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, this right here, God's got this. He's going to take care of that according to his own time, according to his own authority. Is, is this still coming? Absolutely. This is going to happen. This is coming. But right now, that's not the time. And, and you don't need to concern yourself with that time. But remember what I was telling you about? I'm going to fulfill the promise to Holy Spirit. But when you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. Jesus is saying, this is what I want you focused on right here. This up here, the time of the restoring of the kingdom back to Israel, that's going to happen. But in the meantime, until that happens, until the Father's good pleasure is is allowing that to happen, you need to be focused on being my witnesses. And I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit so that you can have the kind of power and the authority to go about being my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. So what we kind of refer to as this church age that we're in, when spiritual Israel and the in-gathering of the Gentiles, and they're being grafted into that rich root, this church age period when God has broken down the the wall of division between the spiritual Israel and and the Gentile world that God's going to be saving, it makes one new man in that time, I want you guys focused on being my witnesses, witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to this very day, we're still awaiting the Father's good pleasure in establishing that messianic Davidic kingdom that's referred to here in verse 6, are we not? We're still waiting for that to happen, and we can still be assured that God the Father's got this. the father has fixed his own time and according to his own authority that's going to take place and so we can rest assured even today that god the father's got this we've been discussing this as we've been looking through the book of daniel god the father's got this he raises kingdoms and he brings down kingdoms and as we saw in nebuchadnezzar's great dream there in daniel chapter 2 there is a A day when a rock that's cut without hands is going to smash the powers of man, the governmental powers and authority of man. That day is going to come. God's got this. It's a time that's fixed according to his own authority. So instead of concerning themselves with that, instead concern yourself with being witnesses of that coming kingdom and of Christ's ultimate rule Over that kingdom. And in the meantime, Christ is in the business of building his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, through the heralding of the good news of his gospel. Because faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes through the Word of God. And so we speak beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We speak forth the glories of the gospel, and through the preaching of the gospel, Paul said in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's how God is building his spiritual kingdom right now. But one day, that spiritual kingdom will become an earthly kingdom, just as was foretold in the Old Testament. So the question that we can ask ourselves and be asking ourselves this morning as we are anticipating and awaiting that beautiful, glorious um, reality. Instead of concerning ourselves with that, we can ask ourselves, how are we doing at being faithful as being his witnesses? Both in, we could make that a J, hey, there's a J-E. We could go N-K-S in jinx. And in all of South Tulsa, and all the way out to Katusa. Sorry if I missed any of your hometowns. We can throw B A BA in here somewhere, and um, and even to the remotest parts of the Earth. Some sense of pulpa. Who was that? <laughs> <laughs> That was obviously a joke. Whoever just whispered that, that's, that's not right. It's got to be Texas. The remotest parts of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> so think about it. So that a little pregnant girl named Mary and her husband Joseph will go from Nazareth to Bethlehem to have a little baby boy named Jesus. God moved an empire to bless the world with the gift of his son, the the Christ child who one day will come again to establish a kingdom that will never, ever, ever end. So let's be asking ourselves this Christmas season as we need to ask ourselves every day, but Christmas season is always a good time of reflection, right? Are we looking more like Jesus Christ this year than we did last year? Because that's the very purpose for which he sent us his son to save you conformity into the image of his son now let's keep moving look at luke 2 again verse 6 and 7 and here we learn something about his humble birth while they were there the days were completed for her to give birth and she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and lined him in a manger because there was no room for them In the end. Now, you would think that if God so rules the world and moves an entire empire through this census to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, surely could have seen fit to make room available in the end, right? I mean, it seems like he could have done that. And the obvious answer is, sure, he could have done that. Without question, he could have done that. There's nothing our God cannot do, remember? From a few weeks, our God is so big, so strong. There's nothing our God cannot do. But he didn't choose to do that. I mean, Jesus, as we look through the Gospels, Jesus could have turned stone into bread when he was being tempted in the wilderness. He could have called 10,000 angels to his aid at Gethsemane. There's all kinds of things that God could have done. So the question isn't what God could have done in this instance, but what he willed to do. And God's will was that through Christ, though... He was, all the riches in the heavenly places were at his disposal while he was in heaven. He relinquished all that for your sake and he became of no estate. The Apostle Paul rightly refers to that in Philippians chapter 2 when describing the greatest act of humility ever known to man. We see that there in Philippians 2. It says, have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus, which was an attitude of great humility. making the very Son of God the sin-cursed sacrifice for all who would repent of their sins and turn to him by faith and bringing him to such a lowly place and having him put to death, even death upon a cross, brings a great deal of humility in those who repent of their sins, turn from their sins and turn to him and cry out to him as God's only means of salvation. And our identity with him is so intricate. The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 2 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul speaking of himself, which this is what's true for us as Christ's followers. The attitude that Jesus had, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. As God's children, as followers of Jesus Christ who have repented and turned away from their old way of living and have turned and started following Jesus, our identity is so attached to him. Our living, our very living, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in. In me. Which reminds us from the Christmas story that that's the making of the greatest news that's ever been told on planet Earth, that we don't have to stay who we are, we get to become something that we never could have been in Christ Jesus. We see this in Luke 2, 8 through 11. a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news, great joy, such is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that brings great joy that we now have a Savior that God has provided if we would only but turn from our sins, recognize that we have sinned against the Holy God, and that we have violated probably all of his commandments, add some. He's made a way for us to have a relationship with him through the inauguration of the new covenant that Jesus Christ established the shedding of his blood at the cross of Calvary. And the reality is, is that most of us go through life fearing something called death, Hebrews 2.14, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subjected to slavery all their lives. Most of us, I think, for good cause, have a recognition within our hearts that there's something just not right about death. And there's a sense where there's a fear of that because we don't know as humans what's beyond that. And such is the good news that brings great joy with the knowledge of the birth of Christ the Lord who is our Savior. Amen? The Word of God tells us exactly that he conquered death Death has no more sting. We can stare into that what happens afterward with full assurance because we look into the very word of God that tells us absent from the body, what? Present with the Lord. And such are the thoughts that accompany the children of God. Good news. <laughs> what great joy! Merry Christmas. Live in the light of such good news, church. Remind yourself this Christmas that Christ is your all in all. He is your joy. He is your peace. He is your great good news. And how do we know this? Well, look at verses 12 through 14. This will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger, and suddenly there appeared with them an, the angel and a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. David's going to like this one. Where's David? The King James <clears throat> and the New King James translates. Verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward Men. Daniel Wallace from Dallas Seminary, one of the um, Greek scholars at Dallas Seminary, makes reference to verse 14, and he says, quote, God's peace extends to, and then anthropois, eudoikios, and anthropois is men, anthropos, men, eudoikios just is a word for pleasure. So God's peace extends to anthropois, eudoikios, And he puts in a parenthesis there, men of his good pleasure. And he says this, which is almost a technical phrase in first century Judaism for God's elect, for God's children, those on whom God has poured out his favor. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Isn't that good? It seems that a reasonable translation here could be peace toward men on whom God's sovereign pleasure rests. And we see that from Paul in Romans 5, one therefore having been justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace toward men On whom God's sovereign pleasure rests. The idea here is that God, through the person of Jesus Christ, is bringing peace between himself and a fallen sinful humanity, and specifically with those on whom his sovereign pleasure rests. And this is why we preach the gospel. And this is why when we preach the gospel, we say, whosoever will come, come. Because we're not God. If you Sit and you think to yourself, does, does God know all things, the beginning from the end, everything? Does he know on whom his good pleasure and sovereign pleasures rest? I think the answer would be an obvious yes. But as I stand here today, Ben Averett doesn't know who God's elect are. I just see people who need the Lord. And so the gospel in my hands and the gospel in my mouth is a whosoever will gospel, as it should be in yours too. And we take that good news and we proclaim it, our focus from Acts 1, to be what? To be witnesses. And we herald that good news as broadly as we can, and we say, whosoever will come, come. And we plead with people to come to receive the peace and the joy and the blessing of the good news that comes through Christ the Lord. Knowing not who will respond to the gospel, but we, are, we recognize that all lives, according to God's good pleasure, could be someone whom he opens spiritually blind eyes to see and draws them to himself through the preaching of the word. Amen? And so we go, and so we speak, and so we live gospel-saturated lives. Because it's through that gospel that God is making peace on earth, bringing goodwill to men. Now, notice the end of this, verse 17 through 20. What those do who have become the recipients of such good news. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Listen, when you are granted by God's grace to see the beauty of Christ, you will believe it and you will want to tell others of him as well. When they, verse 17, when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Let's be encouraged to leave this place this morning with a desire to make known the statements regarding this child, as has been told in the Gospels of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. Let's commit ourselves to living in such a way that validates that this gospel is indeed the greatest story that's ever been told. If we're here this morning and you've named the name of Christ, you put the name of Christ on your lips and you move out into a world and you Have a bumper sticker perhaps on the back of your car windshield that says somehow that you belong to Jesus or you wear shirts that may indicate that or whatever it may be. All of that is nice but that's kind of like window dressings. The most important thing that people need to see is not your bumper stickers or your shirts or your ball caps or your tennis shoes. What they just need to see is they need to see a life transformed by the power of God. That, that when God's gospel intersected your life, it changed you for time and eternity, for the good. I can remember when I was living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, right out of seminary, I took a, my first pastoral work there at a larger Bible church in Pittsburgh. And so if the family would travel up to see us on occasion and on one set occasion, my, my nana, my, my mother's mom, was able to come on the trip. And um, went, she went to church. And it was a Sunday that the senior pastor was gone, so I got to preach. And then we went, in Pittsburgh of all places, we went to the Texas Roadhouse <laughs> for steak. And so we're sitting there, and my nana was sitting across from me, just directly across from me on the table. And she was just staring at me. And she wasn't saying anything at all, which wasn't normal for her. And, um, and then she broke her silence. And she says, the, these were the words she said. I'll never forget that." She says, Benjamin, is that you? Benjamin, is that you? I was like, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's me. And I got to reflecting on it in a little conversation there. You see, she grew up knowing Benjamin. She knew the Benjamin who went through elementary school and junior high school and high school who didn't love the Lord. She knew of all the trouble Benjamin got into. And she was looking at a, a young man now, and she was thinking, is this the same young man that I watched grow up my his entire life something's different about this guy is that you has got to yes it's me but it's not the me you always knew me to be my life got intersected by the gospel of Jesus Christ and it got changed for the good we need to live in such a way that we let our light shine that the world may know who we belong to amen let's do that this christmas season let's leave with a desire that when we come back next year and I say to you next year, do you look more like Jesus this year than you did last year? And now we don't do that in order to earn anything, right? Let's get that straight. We're not doing that to earn anything. You're not earning more favor with God. You can't earn heaven. Let's make no mistakes about that but from a heart of love, just like God the Father so loved the world he gave, from a heart of love from the child of God, looking up to a father and saying, thank you for this free gift. You've rescued me from a domain of sin and darkness, and you freely placed me in the, in the kingdom of your dear son. So from hearts of love, from hearts that are so grateful that we're no longer hell-bound and have to sin because that was our nature, from said hearts of love, Let's seek to be more transformed into the character of Jesus Christ with each passing day, church. Amen? Amen. That's what we do. Let's do that. And if you're here this morning and you know not Jesus as Lord like this, perhaps some of the things I've been speaking about this morning seem a little bit unfamiliar to you, I would love to talk to you about that. Uh, Just find me after service down here. I may be out in the back. But if you sense in your heart that, that God is even drawing you to himself, let's talk about that. Today would be a great day of coming to saving faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, the greatest gift ever given. Let's pray.